What's poppin' friends? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods. This episode of the show is gonna be a little bit different than what you're used to. In it, I'm being interviewed in front of a live studio audience. That's right, it's from an event that happened in New York City a few weeks ago where I got to meet some of the incredible listeners of this show. The event was sponsored by Cognizant City Choline, and I'm gonna tell you a little bit about City Choline in just a few, but first, this was a really fun chat. I was interviewed by Jason Bosley-Smith, who's an expert in all things clinical nutrition, and over the course of the next hour, we talk all things nootropics, exercise, stress, and more. And you'll discover why I've coined the term keto fluid to describe my current approach to diet. Then we take a spirited Q&A from the audience at the end where you guys asked all kinds of great questions, including one that almost got me to cry, actually. So I'm excited for you guys to listen to this show, and uh, I welcome the feedback on it. If you guys want to hear more um, solo episodes, I don't think I've done a solo episode yet, or uh, me being interviewed about various topics, or maybe a Q&A that you guys can throw me questions on Instagram, and then I can um, answer here, uh, yeah, let me know. Now, as I mentioned, this event was sponsored by Cognizant City Choline. I'm grateful to them for putting it together. If you have read my book, Genius Foods, or if you have seen me post about the nutritional value of eggs on Instagram, for example, you've no doubt heard me talk about the importance of choline and specifically its role in cell membrane fluidity. Critically important stuff, you guys. But I want to clarify what city choline is and talk for a second about the important difference between city choline and choline. They sound similar, right? Well, Choline can be found in foods. As I mentioned, it's very rich in um, egg yolks, but citicholine is actually a nootropic or a brain-boosting chemical that your body naturally produces, but it can also be taken as a supplement for cognitive enhancement. Citicholine is more than just a choline source via a number of different mechanisms. It can serve as an acute cognitive enhancer, which means that it's a good candidate um, for a supplement to give you um, potentially an edge before a presentation or uh, an exam but it also is uh, a potent long-term brain-supporting nutrient as well. So thanks to Cognizant City Choline for sponsoring this episode of the podcast and my talk in New York City. Now, before we get into it, you guys, uh, please take a moment to spread the word about what we're doing here at The Genius Life. It could be as simple as taking a screen grab and posting it up on your Instagram stories. Also, join my newsletter at maxlugavir.com. For one, it's a great way to find out about when I'm doing uh, talks that are open to the public in your city. All you got to do is go to maxlugavir.com, enter your first and last name and your email address, and we'll be in touch and you can opt out at any time. Seriously, thousands of people around the world are deriving real value from my newsletter. Uh, and if you haven't signed up yet, what are you waiting for? Without further ado, I want to get into this chat. I had a great time. And um, we, between Jason and I, we drop all kinds of knowledge and I'm excited for you to listen to it. So here we go. Excited. Hello, everybody. How's it going? Damn, you guys look good. Hey, hey, hey. Thank you. Um, well, thank you guys so much for coming. This is amazing. Normally, you know, when I do a podcast, do we have Genius Life fans in the audience? Okay, amazing. Wow. So, normally, when I do a show, you guys know it's me uh, interviewing somebody, um, but this is pretty cool. I feel pretty honored to be getting interviewed by Jason. Which feels weird because you've got way more credentials than I do, but, um, but but you drew the crowd here tonight, not me. They're not here to see me. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, but yeah, I hear the goodie bags are amazing, and you guys are each going to get a copy of the book. So thank you to Cognizant City Choline for hooking this up um, and making tonight really special. Yeah. Well, thank you, Max. It is a pleasure to be here tonight. Thank you for having me and. You know, one of the things I wanted to start off maybe talking about is uh, I recently heard a pretty amazing introduction and sort of kudos to you on the work that you're doing uh, when you spoke at the Aspen Brain Lab. So their VP, uh, Doran Maddy of the Aspen Brain Institute, referred to you, and I'm just going to read it off the page to make sure I get the quotes right, as a new generation of bright light and filling the gap for brain health, among other things. And what's really, I think, amazing and pretty compelling is that you had this complete career 360 when your mom got sick and you shifted now and you have a primary focus really on educating around brain health and dementia prevention. So maybe we can start off by just exploring that a bit and telling us a bit more about what led to your bestseller, uh, Genius Foods. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, my background was in journalism. Actually, let me back up a little bit further. I, I went to University of Miami and I started college on a pre-med track. 
Yeah. I was a biology major, and I'd always been really passionate about health and nutrition. And I was a very, um, growing up in high school, uh, I was kind of an introverted, like computer obsessed uh, nerd, essentially. Nerds are cool now, thankfully, but um, they, weren't, they weren't as, as much in, uh, back when I was going to high school. But I kind of gravitated to science and nutrition because um, I saw exercise and fitness as a way of transcending my you know, not super impressive self at the time, I thought. And that was kind of interestingly spurred by uh, my one day I wandered into a supplement store, actually. And I saw for the first time these like nutraceuticals that kind of spoke to me in a, in, a, in a way that I was also kind of obsessed with superheroes and comic books. And so I kind of saw the, the potions and powders on the wall as being like, just that, like kind of magical in a way. And I became really interested in trying to understand like what it was about these things that could speak to my biology in a way that would, that would help me maybe get a little stronger or look a little better or feel you know, more confident in, in who I was. And so I started uh, in high school, you know, like working out and taking you know, supplements and reading about them. And actually my um, high school senior thesis I wrote on a supplement called creatine. Um, and so I did like a deep dive, you know, for that. I mean, it was like, at the time it felt like a monumental work. It was 10 pages long and, um, and I just felt like a scientist. It was, it was awesome. Um, I was also kind of tinkering with, uh, ketogenic diets. I read a book back then, uh, called the ketogenic diet by Lyle McDonald. So I was a very, this was like 1998, 1997, around that, that time frame. And so I was like a very early adopter. And so that led to me going to school and, you know, kind of focusing on, on biology. Um, but then I got to Miami and as luck would have it, I stumbled into an introductory film course. And I was just totally seduced by the idea of creativity and storytelling. And, you know, I had this like really charismatic professor who swayed me. And from one day to the next, I was like, okay, I'm going to major in film. And I'm going to double major in psychology, you know, so I can kind of like keep a little bit of like my, you know, one foot in science. And that led to me basically getting this amazing job as soon as I graduated from college, um, hosting and producing content for a TV network that Al Gore co-founded. It was called Current TV. Does anybody remember Current TV? It was like, yeah, this uh, news and information network for young people. And... I got to do that for six years. It was like a dream job, um, living out in LA. I, uh, you know, got to cover stories that really ran the gamut from, you know, the environment to science and technology to health. Um, and, you know, I was a bit of a generalist, but uh, I really had a good time. And I also got to learn how to kind of communicate delicate topics, you know. Some of the topics that I covered were very, you know, fl fluffy, I guess you could say. But then others were more, others, you know, had to go through rounds and rounds of like editorial notes and things like that. So it was kind of like similar as a, you, as a journalist, you get trained in a similar way as a scientist. It's definitely not as rigorous, but you kind of understand how to ask questions and be a skeptic and all that sure. stuff. And then I did that for six years. And when I left trying to figure out where I was going to go with my career, um, at that time in my personal life, uh, I was spending more and more time here in New York City around my mom and it was then that me and my family saw the very earliest symptoms of what would ultimately be diagnosed as a form of dementia. And you know, it was just like heartbreaking. But of course, at first, you know, we were all totally ignorant. Um, I had no prior family history of any type of dementia, any brain problem really. And after the initial trauma subsided and my mom attained that first diagnosis, with a neurodegenerative condition, I essentially rolled up my sleeves and, and started to consider myself an, ind an independent investigator into why this would have happened to my mom and what I could do ultimately to protect it from happening to myself. And I began with the primary literature, you know, like digging into PubMed and, and reading as much as I possibly could. And, you know, at first there was a lot that I didn't understand, but I would I had this strategy where if I didn't understand the way something was communicated in one research paper, I would cross-reference it with another one because I thought that maybe another scientist would use a different 
combination of words that would somehow lead to my understanding of this, you know, this issue or this topic, whatever it, whatever it was. And I would just do that, you know, obsessively, you know, staying up until all hours of the night, just reading and reading and reading and watching TED Talks and just cross-referencing constantly um, until a picture of truth began to emerge in, in my head. And then I realized at a certain point, sometime after, after I began with that effort, that I had media credentials and that I was able to sort of exploit those for the benefit of my family. Mm -hmm. And I began reaching out to scientists, you know, starting in New York, but ultimately around the world to try to get up close and personal with the research, you know, to really get a sense of, you know, what the challenges were, what the, what the, what the knowns were, what the unknowns were. Um, and that journey, I mean, that's something that continues to this day and it's going to continue, you know, for the rest of my life. But at a certain point, I realized that I had amassed enough information where um, I could put together a care manual for the human brain. And that's what led to the writing of Genius Foods. Yeah. That's an amazing story, and I think it's really just a tribute to the, the passion that you clearly have around this topic and this area, uh, and being able to kind of bring as a hybrid together those series of skill sets that brought you to here. Um, so to, to maybe delve into the book a bit further, and just to you know, continue off of a point that you made, which is around the ketogenic diet. And just, just out of curiosity, for those that are here, is there anyone that follows keto strictly, or semi-ketoish, or <laughs> keto some days, not on the weekends when there's drinking involved, maybe? <laughs> you know? Okay. Um, so, uh, what keto, your, keto fluid. Keto fluid, right. So what is your take on keto? What, how do you kind of view that in the context of genius foods and, and, and maybe more broadly in brain health based on your research and writing? Yeah, I mean, the, it's, it's hard to, um, I mean, you know, I think anybody dealing with the challenge of having a loved one with dementia and, you know, beginning those initial Google searches, right, consulting Dr. Google, it's not long before you stumble on some mention of the ketogenic diet. And that's because, you know, I think they've been using the ketogenic diet clinically for a decade at this point to treat treatment-resistant epilepsy. And now they're looking at the potential therapeutic applica applications for the ketogenic diet um, in regard to other neurological conditions. And... Good question. The difference, so it was asked, uh, the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's. D Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia. Um, dementia is a category. You have uh, a condition called Parkinson's disease dementia, vascular dementia, frontotemporal dementia, Lewy body dementia. There's different types of dementias. But because Alzheimer's disease is the most common of them, um, obviously it's going to affect a lot more people. And that's where most of the money goes in terms of, you know, pharmaceutical research, but then also diet, you know, potential dietary and lifestyle interventions. Um, so, yeah, I, ketogenic diet, it basically, um, ketones I think are interesting because they are able to fuel the brain. You know, under everyday conditions, and especially when people are uh, consuming the standard American diet, the brain is running purely on sugar. But the brain has other potential fuel sources and ketones have become sort of a focus of research because they're they're considered to be a very clean burning fuel source to the brain and in regard to Alzheimer's disease an al a brain with Alzheimer's disease struggles to create energy with glucose mm -hmm. and yet its ability to create energy from ketones is unperturbed um, and so that's where they're doing all this research now, looking at how a ketogenic diet uh, or a very low carbohydrate diet can basically be used to keep the lights on in a brain with Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. um, there have been a number of really interesting studies. There's obviously a lot of interest in ketogenic diets now, you know, on the internet. Um, and so, you know, and I'd be curious your thoughts, um, but in terms of their ability to support cognitive function and even improve cognition in, in patients with, you know, mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. And there was a, a study that just uh, came out this week that I, that, I, that I tweeted recently where they used a ketogenic dietary intervention to treat mild cognitive impairment, mm -hmm. which is sort of considered like pre-dementia. You know, it's a very critical um, diagnosis because not everybody with mild cognitive impairment is then going to go on to, to some you know, to a more severe form of uh, cognitive impairment, basically. So it's sort of like this, like, window where, you know, it's thought that maybe you could intervene um, and reduce the risk that a patient with MCI converts. So they found that a ketogenic, 
ketogenic diet actually improved cognition by about 15% in patients with mild cognitive, cognitive impairment, um, which is super, you know, it's cause for hope. Um, they've done other studies on, on patients with uh, mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease, and they've been hopeful. I think it's a little bit more, the research is a little bit less consistent um, in pa patients with healthy cognition, and the question there becomes how do you measure you know, improvements in cognition in a healthy population. Sure. But. Yeah, I mean, th there's, there's quite a wealth of uh, research and, and knowledge and information about the ketogenic diet. Now, you mentioned it going back. It's actually was used as sort of the standard of care uh, around the 1920s as uh, for epilepsy, um, for patients with refractory epilepsy. But, you know, at the period of time where it kind of transitioned, where pharmaceuticals became more relevant, it kind of fell out of favor some, but then regained some interest uh, in sort of the 80s into the 90s. In the, uh, in the clinical research and literature. Um, and most of the support is really around some form of neurological dysfunction or disease. Although now it's being kind of studied across a, a breadth of different types of disease processes. So for weight management, obesity, um, for uh, diabetes and even blood sugar regulation issues. You spoke to the blood yeah. glucose uh, piece. Um, and I think it was mentioned at the top, uh, I'm involved with the uh, pilot study right now with a, a, a subset, a cohort of uh, prostate cancer patients under active surveillance. So uh, using the ketogenic diet and with the primary outcome being trying to see if there's a weight loss potential to it, but really on the back end, the oncologists that I'm working with are really looking to see can it actually, can those ketone bodies, um, which have a number of other properties and benefits, anti-inflammatory, cell signaling and otherwise, can they impart some other benefit to a cancer patient too? Um, and just speaking as a, a piece of around the cancer, uh, the one cancer that seems to be most um, you know, promising for the ketogenic diet that responds the best is glioblastoma, so a brain cancer. So it kind of all ties to this concept around cognitive health, neurological health as well. Um, so it's really fascinating, and it, it, it's a, it, for a lot of patients, it's a, it's a challenging diet to implement practically. Yeah. Um, and it really is a therapeutic diet, so if you're trying to do this, there's a number of sort of little caveats that you would certainly want to, for those that haven't quite, you know, dove fully into the ketogenic diet yet, there's some things you would want to consider. And we can certainly talk about them as we, as we go on a bit. Um, and maybe even during the q and I'm sure some of those questions will come up. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, like, uh, I, I, the more I learn, the less um, focused I become on chasing ketones as sort of like an end point. Right. You know, I think the diet that I recommend in Genius Foods, and certainly I, t I talk about all the science on ketosis and, all, and, and that, but to me, it's, it's a diet that's going to allow for intermittent ketosis, you know, on a daily basis, maybe even a seasonal basis. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I think being chronically out of ketosis makes, as, makes just as little sense from an evolutionary standpoint as being chronically in ketosis. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's an argument that you might practice it seasonally, perhaps, sure. um, or even, you know, enjoy dalliances into ketosis. Uh, just as a result of eating a low carbohydrate diet. I mean, your average American today consumes anywhere between two and three hundred grams of carbs a day. Yeah. This diet, my you know my diet, my you know genius lifestyle is, has way fewer carbohydrates on the plate. Um, and so when you combine that with high intensity exercise um, mm -hmm. or just you know activity levels um, in general, you're going to find yourself in ketosis, you know, maybe in the morning perhaps, but again, it's not an endpoint that I'm chasing. Yeah. I also happen to think that um, my iteration of the ketogenic diet, uh, you know, or my, my diet in general, um, is one that's very nutrient dense, you know, mm -hmm. as well. So, I mean, most of the foods that are going to knock you, you know, quote unquote, out of ketosis today are starchy grain products and um, grains in general, which I consider to be very energy dense foods, but nutrient poor. Sure. And I think that chasing nutrient density has become so important today because our foods have changed, right? Like our produce is less nutrient dense than it's ever, than it's ever been in history when you look at certain nutrients, um, animal products as well. Uh, and 90% of, of Americans are now deficient in at least one essential nutrient, vitamin or mineral. So um, the most nutrient dense foods in the supermarket, I think tend to be lower on the carbohydrate spectrum. And when you're consuming those kinds of foods and you're active and you're exercising, you're gonna find yourself, I think, naturally um, producing ketones at least some of the time. Sure. Yeah, and that's a, nice, that's a nice approach too because it doesn't become too narrow or rigid and it allows for some 
flexibility in someone's lifestyle, but also this concept of metabolic flexibility, being yes. able to use either ketones or potentially glucose uh, for energy, for fuel of the body. That, that might be a good segue then, uh, Max, into the next piece, which is uh, clearly you believe that we can make a difference in how our brains age. Um, and we hear some terms like brain hacking and nootropics, but maybe start with brain hacking. What does that really mean to you um, and, and how you kind of you know, pursue that? Yeah, I mean, brain hacking, it's a term. I'll use whatever term I have to use to get people to listen. You know, ultimately, that's why I wrote the book. That's why I called my book Genius Foods. Like, I didn't call it the Dementia Prevention name. Book. You, you like the name? I like the name. Thanks, man. <laughs> um, yeah, because, you know, like, it, to me, it had to be a Trojan horse. And the term superfood, it's not a scientific term, right? But superfood has been co-opted by the food industry. Mm -hmm. And it sells, you know, millions of dollars of goji berries every year, right? And, and sure. other, you know, foods that bear the superfood uh, label. So um, brain hacking, you know, to me, let's be honest, I'm not really hacking my brain. I'm hacking my environment to make it more akin to the kind of environment in which you know, a brain, I think, is designed to not just survive, but thrive. Um, our environment has become mutated. And I think in many ways, it's leading to our brains to suffer. Um, I mean, you could look at statistics uh, on mental health in this country, um, statistics surrounding dementia, Alzheimer's disease. I mean, it's pretty dismal. today. Um, one in seven younger people between the ages of 18 and 34 struggle with memory problems. Um, about one in six adults is on some kind of psychiatric drug, usually for the long haul. And if you make it to the age of 85, you have a 50% chance of being diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. So, mm -hmm. the, I mean, the, the statistics are dismal. And then you look at, you know, what's going on with the body, right? Like, two-thirds of adults are either overweight or obese. 50% are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. Um, so we're, we're under a constant state of assault. In the first chapter of my book, I call it sort of like the Hunger Games for your brain. You know, your brain is like this unwitting combatant being attacked from all angles. And so for me, when I'm like brain hacking, what I'm really doing is I'm, I'm trying to give my brain the essential nutrients that it needs to function properly and to be able to defend itself against the many insults that are waged against it in the modern world. Um, I'm looking at ways of optimizing my sleep, of being more active in a world that chronically compels us to be uh, more sedentary. Um, and I'm looking at ways of dealing with stress. I've become really interested lately um, in this concept of allostatic load, mm -hmm. uh, which is super interesting. So like we, our bodies are, they love to be in a state of balance, right? Um, the, the scientific term is homeostasis. Uh, and your body works very diligently and elegantly behind the scenes to maintain this balance, right? Your blood sugar goes up, your body's working really hard to bring your blood sugar back down. You know, we're, it, we're confronted with a stressful stimula stimulus and, you know, we have these mechanisms that are hardwired to get us out of harm's way so that we can ultimately find balance again. All the steps that your body takes to um, procure, to regain that sense of balance is called allostasis. And we each have a limited, uh, what's called allostatic load, right? And the way that I think about it is sort of like a cup, like an empty glass. And, you know, when you're functioning in a balanced, relaxed state and you're allowing yourself to recover adequately um, from your job, from your personal life, um, you're basically functioning, you know, in a, in a state where that glass is empty so that you could throw in things like fasting or high intensity exercise or you know even coffee caffeine which stimulates to some degree your body's stress pathways um, but the problem is many of us today are functioning in a state of allostatic overload where we're just chronically stressed out right too much coffee and i like coffee i drink coffee and coffee i think is good for you but too much coffee i don't think is very good for you and then people read about things like fasting and ketogenic diets and high intensity exercise and i mean a lot of this stuff i'm sure comes from me right like saunas and cold you know therapy and all that stuff and it just it can all overload the body mm -hmm. to some degree and so hacking the environment um, in many ways i think is just making sure that you're functioning that your baseline state is one of balance Mm -hmm. So that you can begin to like add in those kinds of like, you know, maybe a little bit of intermittent fasting, maybe some high intensity exercise. Because um, those are the things really that I think make us, make us better and more robust and resilient. Yeah, and, and those, there's this concept of, of eustress, which is like a positive stressor on the body. 
But if you're in a state of allostatic overload, those things, although in a healthy state, would otherwise be healthy for you and produce a certain positive outcome can be deleterious, can actually do more damage than good. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, like the allostatic load concept is really around, if you look and kind of dig into the, the research of the, the science on that too, they'll talk about really it's the overload to the neuroendocrine system. So the neuro or nervous system and the endocrine system or the hormonal system. So we're talking about brain and cognitive health. It's those two, those two systems that primarily kind of signal stress response. Um, so it's really important for uh, and a great point I think that you make to kind of uh, for everyone to appreciate the concept of allostatic load and to be able to balance things appropriately. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's why I think that's where those individual variances occur where like, you know, I get a lot of, I'll talk about the benefits of coffee, you know, but then a lot of people, some people don't tolerate coffee. I'm like, well, are you chronically stressed out and you're drinking five cups a day? Right. You know, because that's not going to be, that's not going to make you feel good. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more then because you touched on a couple points around um, really specific nutrients and nutrient density. So maybe we can talk into some specifics around foods and, and certain nutrients that you talk about in the book and that you really are, again, highlighting as maybe the primary kind of nutrient-dense foods that you would recommend to the audience and to readers. Um, so what are some of those things you consider sort of the, the must-have sort of nutrients and, and foods to kind of focus in on? Yeah. Well, I'm a huge fan of... Um, carotenoids. I talk about those quite a bit in the book. So these are pigments. Um, usually they're plant pigments, so lutein, zeaxanthin. Um, but I'm also a huge fan of uh, a marine carotenoid called astaxanthin, mm -hmm. um, which uh, the research on astaxanthin is pretty, pretty cool. Um, and those can be found in a number of the, of the foods that I like to talk about. Avocados, kale, wild salmon, you know, these, these pigments. Um, you know, they act like antioxidants in the, in the body, but, you know, ultimately what they do is they protect your cell membranes, um, you know, which is really important. Those membranes are really sort of, I think, underappreciated, but they're the unsung heroes of our cognitive function, of our mm -hmm. energy levels. Um, you know, if a cell doesn't have access to the, to the outside signals that it's, that it's meant to receive or fuels that it uh, needs to create energy or AT, ATP or energy, then you're going to be at a loss. I'm also a big fan of, um, you know, nutrients that support neurotransmitter produ production. Um, I've talked a bit about choline, you know, and uh, that's one of the reasons why it's been so great to, you know, get to do these events with Cognizant Citicoline. Um, many people don't consume, I think the, the statistic, statistic is like, you know, 10% of adults get adequate choline in their diets, um, which is strange because they're, they're found very abundantly in, you know, foods like egg yolks. Mm -hmm. um, choline is important because it provides not only, uh, going back to the cell membrane, um, the raw materials that your brain requires to create healthy fluid uh, cell membranes, but it serves as the backbone to acetylcholine, which is an important neurotransmitter involved in learning and memory. Yep. Um, so I, do, I tend to obviously, you know, recommend getting all of your nutrients from food, but it's difficult today. As I mentioned, our food has become a little different. Um, and so I'm not opposed to supplementation in, in any way. Um, I appreciate that Cognizant City Choline, you know, it's a direct precursor to that, um, to phospholipids basically, right? That, mm -hmm. that create the phospholipid bilayer, which is essentially how cell membranes orient themselves uh, in mm -hmm. space. Yeah, and, and to your other point, I mean, how cells communicate with the out, outside of the cell, the extracellular space with one and other cells. Um, that's important, certainly, in, in uh, neurological health, uh, but really in health overall. We've got transporters in cells, we've got receptors. They're all kind of around that cell membrane. So if the membra cell membrane doesn't have the right combination or balance of sort of stability and fluidity, it doesn't function well. If the cell doesn't function well, then the tissue doesn't function well. If the tissue doesn't, then the organ or... Um, or gland doesn't, and then the organ system, and then the organism, meaning the human being. So really, it really does start at the cellular level, and that's why that phospholipid bilayer, the membrane, and choline, and these types of nutrients are really vital to health overall. Um, I actually just read on the, on the travel up here uh, a, a 2018 study from published in the Journal of uh, the American College of Nutrition around actually looking at choline, looking at egg and choline and lutein, because eggs have both in the egg yolk, yeah. choline and lutein in them. Nature's so multivitamin super, there, right? right? Yeah. Not to, again, use the term superfood, but again, a nutrient-dense food, yeah. um, where it actually showed that, that both choline and lutein were important, really critical to neurological development a thousand days post-conception. 
And then even further, that lutein may have a significant role to ward all cognitive de decline in adults as well. So they both play a really integral role. Um, any other foods or nutrients that, that come to mind in addition to the few that we mentioned? Are there other things that kind of jump out to you? I, I know I've heard you talk about magnesium a bit before. Is, yeah. is that something that you're, again, thinking of in terms of both uh, dietary intake with food as well as potentially supplementation where necessary? Um, yeah, I mean, let me just, you know, I supplement with, I'll take a B-complex. Um, you know, I had uh, slightly elevated um, levels of a compound, an amino acid called homocysteine, um, hmm. which is a, a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, for Alzheimer's disease. Um, it went down uh, as soon as I started taking, or not as soon as I started taking, but over time, you know, after beginning a, a taking a B-complex. Um, okay. Vitamin D intermittently, um, fish oil intermittently. Um, I do supplement with uh, magnesium glycinate. Um, you know, magnesium, I've just, you know, it's kind of mind-blowing the degree to which magnesium is utilized in the body. It's pretty popular uh, for, um, you know, energy creation, for DNA repair. Um, so I'll supplement with that. Our foods are becoming, you know, there's just over a 50-year window um, some of our nutrients have have declined by up to 38% just between the years of um, 1950 and 1999. There was a researcher at the University of Texas named Donald Davis who uh, did this huge meta-analysis um, of all the nutritional information for our produce. And, you know, so our food is, is changing. Um, and that's owed, I think, to many, uh, there are many reasons for that, whether it's um, monoculture or the fact that it's been it's been speculated that because there's more co2 now in the atmosphere that our plants are growing faster um, and so you know I definitely think that there's a place for supplementation what I don't agree with is that there's this like one-size-fits-all uh, supplementation regimen you know it's it's helpful to get labs to look at your blood work um, to see where you may be deficient and also your dietary tastes maybe you don't like foods that contain choline or whatever you know sure um, so yeah, it's definitely like a, an individualized thing. Yeah. So how many, just out of curiosity with the lab piece, how many folks in the audience get some form of blood work or regular labs to kind of check these types of values? Okay, great. That's more than I often see when I ask that question typically in these types of settings or groups is sort of like, just maybe a few sort of do that. Yeah, that's but really they, they listen, they're woke. They listen that's, to the That's genius. true, there you yeah. go, exactly, right? My followers are badass. <laughs> that's great. Um, so let's shift gears a little bit because the one thing that we uh, haven't really touched on yet um, really are nootropics, and I know I think there's at least some, uh, some people in the audience who might be interested in, in your, um, you know, your take on this. I'd be interested in a little bit more of your take and, and ideas because nootropics is an area that I have some curiosity around and some things like brain-derived uh, nootropic factor as a protein that actually stimulates neuron development and, and differentiation and really kind of actually the idea of sort of really growth. Um, and I think one of the recent interviews I heard you talk about, hey, we now know that you can actually have development and, and regrowth and growth of neurons as, as time progresses. Yeah. Before it was thought that, well, once neurons die, brain cells die, they never come back. Um, so nootropics, uh, how do you define that and, and what's your sort of take on those? There has been some mixed and maybe some controversial info in the media about that. So, so what's your perspective? Yeah, I mean, my, my sort of standard answer to that question is that food is the best nootropic. Um, you know, I really think that there's, there are, there's so much low-hanging fruit in people's lives. Um, you know, I've been very uh, privileged to get to do, as was mentioned at the top, like I do all these TV shows, right? Like the Dr. Oz show, the Rachel Ray show. And so I'm definitely not a person who's been, um, I, think, I think like on, on, in the world of social media, we tend to fall into these like filter bubbles they've been called where suddenly we take on this very self-centered view of the world you know and there's all these factions in nutrition right there's like keto there's vegan but reaching like like mainstream America on these TV shows has given me a totally different perspective um, you know because again when you look at health statistics I mean people are not well and so for most people I think just like even an incremental improvement in their diets, you know, like a little bit less ultra packaged, you know, ultra processed foods is going to have a marked improvement, I think, not only on the way that they feel, um, but in terms of their, their cognitive performance. So that's why, for me, I'm just, you know, a big, like, stickler, I guess, to, like, you know, getting to the gym, 
uh, cutting out the packaged processed foods as best as you can. Um, we're all guilty of eating, you know, like treating ourselves every now and then. Um, sure. And we shouldn't actually feel guilty for that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, generally, I think that like food has a, has a really powerful ability to boost cognitive function, even and no matter what age you're at. Mm -hmm. So one of the studies that I talk about a lot because it's sort of like the best evidence that we have that our choices can affect the way that our brains work comes from the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. It's called the Finger Study, and it's ongoing. It's the world's first ever large population, long-term randomized control trial where they've taken older adults that are at risk for cognitive decline, and they put them on a dietary and lifestyle intervention and compared to the Swedes that are getting, or actually the interventions happening in Finland, so the Finns that are getting the standard of care, even if you're like old and have at least one risk factor for developing cognitive decline, you can improve your brain's processing speed by 150% and your executive function by 83%. Now, generally speaking, we're all you know, younger than that population on average um, in this room and you know, those who listen to my podcast, but that doesn't mean that you can't improve the way that your brain works, even if you're young. So I talk about carotenoids a lot. There was a, a, a research study at University of Georgia where they found that by supplementing with these compounds, lutein and zeaxanthin in particular, that this young and healthy population were able to achieve a 20% improvement in um, their visual processing speed, which is amazing because you're already, you know, as a young person, you're already sort of considered to be at the peak of your cognitive prowess, right? Mm -hmm. um, and those compounds are found in food. They're found in the foods that we're not really eating that much of when you zoom out and you look at the population. Uh, but they are found in food, so. I mean, I agree wholeheartedly. I've always been a big proponent of food first with my clients and patients. Um, because sometimes you get you know, a patient that comes in and they go, oh, what, kind of what are you doing for your health? And especially in, in my realm where they tend to be kind of leaning into the functional medicine or integrative sort of health space, um, which I think is probably you know, uh, kind of growing and emerging even more and more. Uh, and they'll come in and go, oh yeah, but I do X, Y, and Z with food. I'm really trying, but I have these supplements. And they'll take a bag and go plunk on the table. And it's just bottles and bottles of these different supplements. Um, and it's just, you know, they do a little Dr. Google search and they find that, oh, this one might be good for this and this one for that. But it's never really specific to them. Um, and again, it's never, not necessarily, unfortunately, quality. So there is a di big difference in what you get in terms of, of supplements. I know myself as a clinician and with the company I work with, that there is a, a focus on kind of quality and manufacturing things. So, uh, and I know that that's something that we discussed before. So is, is there any kind of recommendations you would have? We start with food as our base, but if someone is saying, well, I'd like to find some sort of supplements that are you know, relevant to me and relevant to maybe protection or enhancement of, of cognitive function, what would someone sort of look for or not look for in a, maybe a nootropic or just really a dietary supplement in general? Yeah, I mean, one of the, so one of the things that I learned um, when I did an interview on my podcast with uh, a PharmD, Danielle Citrolo, who works with with um, Cognizant, is that you know so there's this like misconception that supplements are totally unregulated, um, but when you stick with you know a brand name, it's sort of like getting the better version of like your favorite toilet paper as opposed to like the the supermarket brand, you know. We've all um, been there. You get that weird toilet paper. There's, and, you know, you don't, you know. Yeah, you don't it's want no like, the supermarket brand. <laughs> um, analogy, guys. Want, just remember toilet paper, <laughs> supplements. <laughs> yeah. That was an analogy. That, she made that analogy. Oh, did she? Yeah. Okay. There we yeah. go. <laughs> um, which, well, it was a good analogy. Um, and, you know, I think with supplements, like, there are always going to be bad apples um, in the industry, you know, that unfortunately bring the rest of the folks that are out there putting out, you know, good quality stuff out. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I've, as I mentioned, I've, my first um, entry into this world was from, like, was through the world of supplements, you right. know, and how just like, you know, how great I think that they can be in the right context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, to your point earlier about to the, the regulatory piece. So there are, you know, uh, companies and brands and manufacturers that need to be you know, NSF certified, GMP certified, that go through certain levels of quality control and assurance. And I would always encourage my patients or anyone looking for a dietary supplement to at least look for those types of, you know, monikers on the label to ensure that there's a certain level of quality to those. Yeah. Um, so we touched on exercise earlier. 
Uh, are there any specifics around exercise? Kind of what's your take on exercise in, in terms of how it can then support brain health and, and cognitive function? Yeah, well, very recently, um, my, uh, exercise was made a treatment um, guideline for patients with mild cognitive impairment, like mm. an, officially from the American Academy of Neurology. So if you have mild cognitive impairment, you can basically uh, exercise now and um, there's enough evidence where you know physicians are now finally getting behind it as a means of, of improving cognition right. and potentially you know staving off further decline um, personally for me exercise is like such an important part of my life I you know my own bias is towards lifting weights like I just love since high school like I've just always loved going to the gym and um, getting in the zone and uh, and nowadays I do it mostly for mental health. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I just love the, you know, that space that it affords me to go and um, really kind of like lean in, listen to my body and uh, see what it can do. There's, this, like, there's, there's a great quote, I forget you know, the exact line, but I mean, essentially what it comes down to is we're each heir to this incredible gift, right? This, this vessel. And it's capable of so much, so many amazing things. Um, and yet, I think it's something that we take for granted. Uh, you know, we just, we let ourselves, we subject ourselves to entropy, right? But if you go to the gym and you uh, make fitness a priority, um, you know, you can be so much more. And, and I think, like, we've, we've evolved these mechanisms that reward us when we do that in terms of how we feel about not just the world, but ourselves. Um, and so when it comes to specific recommendations, you know, like I think aerobic exercise gets a lot of love in the literature. It boosts levels of BDNF, which is that miracle grow protein that supports healthy brain function. Mm -hmm. um, but resistance training, it's sort of getting its time in the spotlight too these days. There have been a number of really good meta-analyses published recently um, on the, the power of resistance training for mental health. Um, they found that, I mean, whether you are, you know, clinically diagnosed um, or you just suffer, suffer from occasional depression or anxiety, that resistance training is a powerful tool to help, you know, reduce symptoms of each, depression and anxiety, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is, is cool and important, you know, considering that we live in such anxious times. Yeah, I agree, and I think uh, the one thing that, um that is particularly beneficial about resistance training is especially in the context of mild cognitive impairment or this trend towards Alzheimer's where there's these chronic elevations in insulin and glucose, which yeah. I kind of touched on before, uh, is that skeletal muscle contraction, resistance exercise or training, is an insulin independent glucose transport mechanism. Yeah. Sort of fancy bunch of words thrown together to say if you contract your skeletal muscles enough, vigorously enough, that despite having or needing insulin, you can actually get that blood sugar down by getting those glucose molecules into the cells. Yeah. It's so for people that are chronically high glucose and the insulin issues, that can actually be a great remedy. Turns your muscles into a sponge, sucks yeah. glucose out of the blood. Yeah. How amazing is that? Yeah. And it also supports metabolic flexibility, which you mentioned, right? right? I mean, so if you are eating generally a low carbohydrate diet and then you have a great workout and then you want to treat yourselves to whatever, you know, be it like a French macaroon or a brown, roast, a brown rice salad, a bowl or sweet potato, whatever, you benefit from that insulin-independent glucose uptake. Yep. And insulin is basically the chief arbiter of whether or not you're burning fat. Now, whether or not your goal includes weight loss, you know, there's a lot of people, uh, I kind of battle with them pretty, pretty regularly on Instagram now where, you know, you've got to add the caveat that like, Weight loss is about a calorie deficit, right? Or calorie sur energy surplus. But still, when it comes to brain function and brain health, I think being a fat burner and being metabolically flexible, being in a, in a position where your body can oxidize fat, I think is, is critically important. Mm -hmm. I agree. So um, to, to kind of broadly kind of talk about some of these big takeaways then maybe, Max, what are maybe your top five, and I think we probably touched on a few, but maybe we can just kind of review those. Your top five pieces of advice for our audience to live smarter longer, to have that healthier, you know, long-term brain function? Well, definitely, um, man, I'm a huge, uh, you know, advocate of sleep. I think getting good sleep, high quality sleep. To me, sleep is sacred. 
and I try to optimize my sleep opportunity every night. Um, there seems to be this magic number for adults, eight hours seems to be a, a good rule of thumb in terms of the amount of sleep that you want to get. But um, we're all going to suffer from you know, the occasional sleepless night, but I think it's, it's important to realize um, what just one sleepless night can do to you. And you know, that's, uh, I think, generally going to be a powerful motivator in terms of looking at your sleep and figuring out what you can do to optimize it. So I mean, just on one night of poor sleep, you become essentially metabolically obese for the next day mm -hmm. to the tune of like, if you were to gain 20 to 30 pounds, you become that much more insulin resistant. You also on one night of poor sleep, um, or I should say shortened sleep, you, they've measured in cerebrospinal fluid a 30% increase in beta amyloid, which is the backbone precursor to the amyloid plaques that aggregate in the brain and are associated with Alzheimer's disease. Um, and there's a 50% increase in tau protein. So tau is another protein that actually the aggregation of tau is thought to precede the buildup of amyloid. So for decades, you know, researchers were looking at amyloid as a therapeutic, as a means of you know, therapeutic intervention. The more you know, they could reduce amyloid in the brain, they, they would, the thinking goes that would be sort of like a potential cure for the disease. Um, but tau is you know, increased dramatically um, on just one night of poor sleep, and tau precedes uh, the aggregation of amyloid. So all that is to say, um, sleep is essential, and you, know, you really want to do what you can to optimize that, that window every single night. And all of those, everything that I've just mentioned, they're te temporary, thankfully. Um, but over the long term, you know, chronic sleep deprivation, uh, no bueno. Exercise we've already talked about. Mm -hmm. I'm a huge fan of exercise. Um, you know, I have my own bias, again, as I mentioned, towards resistance training, but ultimately, um, whatever type of exercise you like to do most, uh, just, you know, stick with it. Adherence is really important. Um, with the caveat that I think weightlifting, resistance training is super important and can be underappreciated. Although I think now, thanks to like Instagram and stuff, Women, you know, females are embracing weightlifting, which is good for, you know, a while. I don't think that was, you know, necessarily the case. Um, so get in the gym, lift weights, uh, get stronger. Um, stress mitigation, critical. Um, I meditated before tonight. It's not something I do all that regularly, but um, I think it's important to know how to meditate. Uh, so whether that means taking an online course or a class in person, um, meditation is a, you know, it's an, it's an art form and a skill set that humans have been honing for millennia. And, you know, the idea that uh, it's just arrogant to expect to know how to meditate. You need to be taught to meditate um, and to learn, you know, a method that, that works. And then, man, what else? Okay, all those, we've got three. Sleep, resistance exercise. Resistance training, stress mitigation. Stress mitigation. Food? Well, food is a big <laughs> one, yeah. Food is a, food is a big what one. What would be maybe the top, you know, just broadly, I, I think you've already touched on this, but sort of food recommendations generally, because again, there's, yeah. there's a lot to maybe take in here. So instead of maybe, we talked about individual foods or nutrients, but yeah. what would your kind of overarching? Overarching. Yeah. So nutrient good, dense? Would be well, yeah, that's a good question. So that changes, yeah. I mean, for me, it changes a lot because, you know, a question that I frequently get asked is like, you know, if you had to give one takeaway, one piece of advice in terms of somebody's diet, right? Sure. And so that, for me, the response to that question has changed mm. over time. Today, what I would say is a good rule of thumb is to uh, focus on protein, um, to be honest. I think that um, protein sort of gets a bad rap. Uh, there's really no um, consistent uh, human studies that, that show us any benefit to a low-protein diet unless you have... Uh, existing kidney, kidney disease, sure. um, but for a healthy um, person, you know, focusing on protein is great for a few reasons. For one, protein is the most satiating of the macronutrients. So if you are trying to, um, whether you're trying to bulk up or lose weight, protein is an incredibly powerful tool because it's going to be, it's the mo it, it basically, it's thought that our hunger mechanisms are guided by our necessity for amino acids, which basically is are what protein breaks down into once we consume them. But they also provide a bevy of uh, 
very bioavailable micronutrients. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of, of grass-fed beef, wild salmon, mm -hmm. uh, things like that. And so, yeah. And then the, the fact that protein is important for muscle protein synthesis, again, growing and maintaining your muscle as you age, um, mm -hmm. critically important. Yeah, protect against uh, sarcopenia or any kind of muscle loss as age happens, which again, improves sort of metabolic function long-term as well. So I would agree. I mean, that's a, a big piece of it. Even the couple of foods that you mentioned, whether it's grass-fed beef or salmon, I mean, there, there's very few foods that just have sort of one sort of nutrient profile. It's a dietary, you know, profile and a combination of nutrients. Um, and I know I've heard you discuss the idea of sort of a dietary pattern, yeah. you know, versus necessarily sort of a singular sort of focus. So protein in the context of really nutrient-dense foods, many of which you've already named tonight, I think is a really great takeaway for the audience to kind of consider. Yeah, I mean, you don't get a more nutrient-dense food than grass-fed beef, you mm. know, or, or wild salmon. And so I like to combine that with um, fibrous veggies, you know, dark leafy greens. Mm -hmm. People who've read the book, um, you know, know that I advocate for a large salad every day, like a fatty salad mm -hmm. full of dark leafy greens, um, spinach, kale, arugula, things like that. I think that can be combined um, with, you know, your protein of choice, obviously. Um, but yeah, I mean, if I'm having like a, a hunger pang or I want something to hold me over, yeah, generally like these days I've been just experimenting with like chase the protein um, and it's been working for me. Excellent. Um, well, I, I know we wanted to be able to leave some time also for some Q&A and have some interaction with the audience. Max, are there any other big takeaways you'd like to share now or do we want to kind of transition over and let the audience kind of pick your brain a bit more? Man, I love a good Q&A, so. Yeah. Yeah, let's open um, it up. Well, thank you, Max, for the wonderful con uh, conversation. Thank you to Cognizant City Choline. Um, and if you uh, want to find more information out about Cognizant City Choline, you can follow them on Instagram at Cognizant City Choline at Cognizant.com. But we will transition now and move over to a Q&A session. We'll be able to ask questions. So we'll take it away in terms of how we're going to do the Q&A. We're just going to do hands up and pass the mic. Perfect. Oh, we've got okay. a mic. Yeah. Great. Again, this is going to be yeah, recorded, mics. right? So yes. yeah, you got to Hey, we want to make sure mic. we capture your questions. So yeah, be great to got And Jason's going to pick, right? Oh man, that gets take, me in trouble. Then take, afterwards, if I don't pick everybody's questions, the they, they find me, me outside. And <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> that works. So does anybody have a question? I think I see a hand one up here first gentleman right here in the third row. So, Max, as it pertains to fasting, um, Peter Atia has come out and talks a lot about these 72-hour fasts. Um, we also have, like, these eight-hour feeding windows. What's your perspective? Man, well, I've never done a 72-hour fast. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm a fan of, of, like, intermittent fasting, but I'm, I, don't tr I don't let myself get hung up on the hours. Um, I think the most important thing in regards to intermi intermittent fasting is consistency. There's some research that I've seen where um, generally we have no requirement for breakfast or anything like that, but I do think that our bodies adapt to our eating schedule. And so there was one paper that found that women who um, skipped breakfast uh, basically had an increase in hunger and um, insulin resistance, but only if they were habitual breakfast consumers. So for those that regularly skip breakfast, there was no you know, detriment to, their, to not having breakfast. Um, I think when it comes to circadian biology, I'm pretty compelled by the research that I've seen. You know, I don't think that you wanna eat too late at night. A good you know, rule of thumb is two to three hours before bed is when generally I'll shut off the consumption of food. Um, and then, yeah, I've never done any of those like lengthier fasts. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of time looking into the fasting mim mimicking diet, which is basically like five consecutive days of very low calorie consumption. Um, you know, so it's basically a like calorie restriction. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it's important to, to recognize that we have, you know, there's fed state physiology and then there's fasted physiology, and I think we need a balance of both, right? Like our bodies do important things in both phases. Um, and so that's where intermittent fasting to me holds value. Um, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of it. Great. Next question in the front here. 
What do you think about raw veganism and medical medium? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a fan of veganism. Um, I think it's, uh, you, you know, no shame. I mean, I think it's like if you choose to adopt that diet, then like I don't judge people who, who adopt the diet, but I just think that there's a very vocal minority of vegans that um, conflate their, you know, ethics-driven um, agenda with like health science and, I th and that's where I get kind of pissed off because there's no good evidence really to say that veganism is like good for the brain or anything like that. There have been a few books to come out on the topic recently um, and I just don't know where these re you know researchers and I'll use air quotes to describe them come out with that because I mean you know all the best evidence that we have incorporates fish you know for example into that diet so if you're talking about a diet for brain health and you're not including fish you know then it's that's essentially what I would describe as uh, quackery and I also <laughs> um, you know tell them how you really feel <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean so again no no judging if you do it for ethical purposes or anything like that but I just don't think that it's optimal from a brain from a brain health perspective and I will say that my mom suffered um, a lot and her health was not good and my mom was a low meat eater. My mom was an ethical vegetarian. She wasn't a vegan um, but she never ate red meat and she also whenever she would eat um, any kind of meat really it was for it was just for the protein so it would only be like chicken breast. She also never ate eggs or anything like that. Um, and the house that I grew up in, you know, we were very privileged. We, I grew up here in New York City. We had access to healthy food. Um, and it was always sort of like low-fat, you know, cholesterol-free, um, you know, animal proteins are not great for you. And I didn't grow up, you know, I grew up eating, you know, my mom had three boys and there was my dad and we all loved, loved meat growing up. Um, but she was, a, she was a low meat eater. So not that I'm going to say that that, is what led to her health problems but it certainly you know meat avoidance certainly didn't help her and she was not a, you know a researcher in any sense in regard to health she just kind of got the information as it would come from media and from magazines and the like and so that's so in many ways I feel like my mom was victimized by um, dietary dogma and and you know conventional wisdom and all that stuff so it's just I've become very passionate about kind of separating fact from fiction in that regard. And maybe right behind uh, here in the third row with the sand up. So um, on a lot of days I, I get this kind of like lull where I get like, like I'm fine throughout the day but then I get like really tired for like probably a few hours and then and then like later in the night I, I snap out of it. And I think a lot of people go through that, like they call it the two o'clock, you know, lull or yeah. something like that. So I'm just wondering if you have any advice as how to uh, get rid of it. I yeah, guess. well, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's possible. Fatigue could be caused by, you know, a myriad of different things. Um, and I'm not a medical doctor, but uh, sometimes I experience that when I am drinking too much coffee. I don't know if you drink coffee. I do, yeah. You do, yeah. Um, so I think coffee is good for you. Um, but I think that personally in, in my own life, I enjoy the taste of coffee and I like the way it makes me feel. So over time, sometimes there's like a slow creep in terms of the amount of caffeine that I'm intaking every single day. And it gets to a point sometimes where I'll notice where I'll have an, an extra cup in, an after, in the afternoon and it actually makes me tired. And I know that that is a signal to me that I should take a week off of coffee and sort of reset my adenosine receptors or whatever whatever it is that, that, that that's doing but it's actually kind of remarkable if you guys drink coffee um, you, and you do a week where you're just drinking decaf or not even um, I think decaf is good because you get a little bit of the classical conditioning going you, it's like a little bit of a placebo but you're not getting any caffeine for the first three days you feel like you're moving around underwater but um, but then it's like remarkable after day three, at least for me, um, I feel like reborn 
and you you basically feel super energetic and you and you don't you, you actually don't want to bring coffee back into your life because you you know usually when I do that that's usually right after like I'm drinking too much coffee and I feel like I'm tired and wired at the same time but I recommend that you know maybe trying taking a week off of coffee um, giving yourself a little reset you know stick to decaf but it's it's pretty kind of crazy like how you'll feel after three to four days I have noticed that yeah but I, I always come back to it I don't know I well, it's intuitively, just, yeah, we get tired, uh, we drink more coffee, right? But it's that? intuitively, like, when we get tired, we drink more coffee. Yeah. But I think it gets to, uh, you know what it is? It's allostatic overload yep. is what I would, you know, guess that that is. So take the week off and, um, and then come back to it. Try that. I have one more question, but... It's up to you. You're the art, you're the gatekeeper here. Maybe we could come back to you because we only have a little bit of time. There's a um, in the back here with her hand up. Maybe Just, uh, we'll make sure we miss some some folks in the back that have questions. Hi, Max. Hey. So, do you have any advice? What the best first step would be to help someone who has Alzheimer's already? Oh man. Um, what stage? If anything. Um, I'm not exactly sure. Um, it's my uncle, but I haven't seen him in a while. Huh. Well, I think the best recommendation would be to make sure that they're exercising. Um, and I, I would put that over food because uh, I had the experience with my mom where, you know, at first I couldn't wait to spread the gospel of what I was learning and to try to put her on like my version of a you know, like a rigorous diet. But at a certain point, you have to realize that people live the way that they want to live and, um, and they're your, your loved ones, so you have to teach gently and then, and then step back. And the last thing that I would ever want to do would have my mom, whose quality of life became so diminished, feel guilty, you know, when I would come, you know, were I to come over and see her eating a cookie or something like that, you know? So, you really don't want to impose any, any kind of restrictions um, because it's just not, it's not worth it for your relationship. But that being said, and, and also with patients with Alzheimer's disease, there's a, there's a shift in food preference. So, I mean, a ketogenic diet would probably be what I would do to my, you know, impose on myself were I to develop Alzheimer's disease. But um, these are hard diets to adhere to. You know this. And they become even harder for somebody with Alzheimer's disease because there's a, there's a shift in food preference. They begin to crave sweet foods, actually, which is thought to be, you know, it's been speculated that it's like the brain is like crying out for energy. Um, and so, yeah, I think MCT oil might be a potential help. But again, I say that just as a, you know, some of the research that I've seen um, is suggestive that it, that it may help because uh, it provides ketones to the brain. Um, and I sort of talk about why that is in the book. But exercise is something that I think anybody can do, and it's going to, you know, I think potentially help. I mean, they're using it as a treatment now for mild cognitive impairment. Um, it, you know, I'm, I, I'm drawing a blank on, like, specific studies that I've seen with exercise and patients with Alzheimer's, but um, I know that it slows the progression of Parkinson's disease, um, so I would just, yeah, have them, have them staying active as it, much as possible. And improves vascular function, the idea of exercise. Yeah. And a lot of times in Alzheimer's patients, you have this sort of lack of cerebral blood flow. Um, so to be able to have something as simple as exercise, but as, you know, something that sort of direct that you can do would at least be one area that would be useful there to, to get that blood flow circulating to those areas that maybe have been diminished. Yeah, yeah. it's a great point. Um, yeah, any, any type of activity, keeping, keeping, keeping them busy, um, you know, and just like even above and beyond exercise, uh, I've also become interested lately in uh, what's called NEAT, which stands for non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So just like, you know, making sure that, peop that, that we all, but, you know, especially people with any kind of neurological condition are staying active and, you know, whether that means honestly doing dishes or chores around the house. Um, you know, my mom would, uh, would like, you know, even in the later stages, 
um, she would try to like always like cu cut me an apple or something, you know, like some kind of fruit. And um, and you feel like uh, you know at a, at a certain point you don't want them to get up and disturb themselves for you, but you you have to let them continue to like be the mom, right, or or be the dad and. And so I would encourage her to like do those things and continue to clean up, you know, if she would want to. And because um, all those things are important, just, you know, staying active, pushing blood up to the brain, um, all that stuff. It's like, yeah, but dementia is tough. It's really hard. So my heart goes out. Thank you. <laughs> I think we have time for one more question in the middle. Max and Jason, thank you for the great talk. And um, I'm from China, and I'm a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner. So I'm wondering if, you know, during your research, you t have you come across anything related to TC traditional Chinese medicine in the world of brain hacking? And what do you think is, is there a role for oriental medicine uh, in the world of wellness right now? Um. I think that there's a lot of wisdom to be gleaned from Chinese medicine um, and traditional medicine. I'm not uh, in any way an expert in, in, you know, like Chinese medicine, but um, I'm definitely, you know, open-minded. And uh, I think lion's mane is, was, has lion's mane been a staple in Chinese medicine? It is, um, yeah. yeah, medicinal mushroom, like reishi, lion's mane. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm a fan of lion's mane. Um, they've, there's some studies on it and, you know, its ability to boost nerve growth factor and improve cognition in, in certain populations. Um, I, uh, yeah, so, but specifically, you know, there's not, I don't know that much about Chinese medicine. Um, there have been some interesting studies to come out of Asia on the value of mushrooms, generally speaking. Um, I didn't really talk much about mushrooms and genius foods, but uh, if I had, if I, you know, ever do like a, an updated version, I would add them. Um, mushrooms are, you know, interestingly, they're not a, they're not the plant, they're not plants, they're not animals, they're, they're, they're their own super diverse kingdom. And, um, some really interesting, re you know, research studies out of um, Asia are finding that habitual mushroom consumers have a reduced risk of developing dementia and m MCI, mild cognitive impairment. And apparently, all you need is about a half a plate a week to uh, experience that that risk reduction. So, it just really speaks more to the power of food and the power food first food. approach and, and genius food. So, excellent. Well, um, thank you again, Max. Thank you all for your questions. So. Uh, we're going to, um, again, shift a little bit now. We're going to have Max do some book signing and then we'll do.